You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey everybody, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible, we talk about all the weird stuff we can find, and try to make sense of it. And that sound we about got right? More, yeah, 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 and we got more weird stuff this week, because last week I told the story, and uh, this week I'm going to talk about how we use the story. And, um, you know, we didn't do any chit-chat. Is there anything we need to chit-chat about? Because I feel like we just, like... We're in go mode this morning. I yeah, well, I've been up since about five. Um, so <laughs> I don't know. It's I think it's part well, of getting old. You just wake up early. Yeah, I never understood that with dad. Of course, this morning when Ty was up at three thirty and he left at four, I'm like, just go back to sleep. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. I say but... getting old. I mean, not quite forty, but <laughs> getting no. there. I I get it. I'm 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 feeling it. So I guess uh you know Scrappy is trying to remind us that we were talking about a wild rooster last week. So uh, the, the wild rooster. Yeah. The dookie uh, fought. I I yeah. yeah. So but I don't have anything really to chit chat about. I think everything's basically <laughs> the same since last week, by the way. Just just to answer your question. Yeah, yeah, it's the it's the same stuff every week, just the same old grind. But you know, hey, we're we're hanging in there, and sometimes that's the biggest victory you can do is just to hang in there. So, uh, but I don't want to go over the entire story again. Uh, if you want to hear the story, go back and listen to last week's episode. It's a wild ride. It's a Talmudic story. It's found in Gittin. Um, so if you want to read it, you can find it. You can just Google Solomon and his demons. And a lot of times this is the story that you're going to find on the mm. internet. Um, so, but just to give people a little bit of context in case you slept since last week, this is the story about how Solomon supposedly imprisoned the king of demons, Ashmedai, and how Ashmedai helped him find the Shamira, which is, or the Shamir, sorry, the Shamir that is supposed to be either some kind of gemstone or possibly a worm that allowed rocks to be cut without any kind of metal implements. And this Shamir is spoken of in various places throughout the Talmud. It was supposedly what Moses used to cut the engravings and the gemstones of the priest's breastplate. And the the story is just really wild and it's stories like this that have caused a number of people to criticize the talmud that oh look at this is an evil book this is this is a collection of books that teach witchcraft that teach uh things that are not scriptural that teach you know misguided ways of looking at the world and the problem is we aren't seeing the whole picture whenever we approach the Talmud like that. Mm -hmm. So there are problems with Talmudic Judaism. I'm not going to, to dispute that. But part of the problem is we don't understand what's going on. Now, I need to be very clear here. 
I'm not saying that the story of Solomon and the Shamir and Ashmedai is true in any way, shape, or form. I, I don't want people thinking that's what I'm saying. So I need to be, you know, very clear on that up front. Mm-hmm. So last week when we concluded, we talked about that how um you know, we still kind of do this with biblical stories. And I pointed to how Lindsay's the late great planet Earth mm-hmm. was one way that we did this, uh, how easy it is for us to do it, especially with Revelation. Uh, we talked about the Left Behind series, and it's a way of kind of contextualizing those gaps and trying to make sense of the places where the Bible and the story it tells leaves gaps and room for speculation. And people want to fill in those gaps so much. I want to fill in those gaps so much. I want all the answers. I want all the information. (laughs) So um, whenever we read this story, you know, we need to remember people are still people. But that's not all that's going on here. Because what we need to remember is criticizing Solomon was tricky business. When, When we're talking about people in exile, the Israelites in exile, and them wanting to return home and them wanting to get back to Israel to reclaim that property and be where God had told them they were going to spend the rest of eternity and given to them in this covenant that he made back with Abraham. You don't want to criticize or point out the flaws of the central hero who made Israel a great kingdom to begin with. Mm-hmm. And of course, that mindset carries over to the Roman occupation. So what we need to remember, notice first thing about the Talmud is that it's written after Jesus has uh, been alive, died, returned to heaven. That, that's when it happened. It was um, several years later. And the stories contained within the Talmud were not originally written down. These are the stories that were taught from a rabbi to his disciple. The, the, they were given through oral tradition. There was a lot of explanation. There was a lot of conversation about these stories. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we forget that even though they weren't written down until I believe it was 150 AD or so, the material that they're reflecting actually come from a previous time or a majority of the material comes from a previous time. And so these stories are actually quite old. They would have been part of what influenced the way that the Jews during Jesus' day would have read their own scripture or heard the stories of their own scripture and faith. And so for this reason, the stories are important because they help us understand what Jesus was up against Mm -hmm. and what Jesus was often criticizing whenever he talked about adding to the Bible. And the the thing is, Jesus did acknowledge in certain areas, he acknowledged the validity of parts of the oral law. We talked about that before. And if you want to um, hear more about that or research more about that, I highly recommend Dr. Brad Young's uh, Jesus, the Jewish Rabbi's book. Amazing book available so on Jesus, Amazon. Jesus, the Jewish theologian. Uh, thank you. Yeah. And Meet the Rabbis. I think you combined some uh, Yeah. Just get both of them. There. Yeah. They're, they're both yeah. good. <laughs> and, and they're easy to read. And I know Dr. Young personally. Um, matter of fact, I think it next month they're going to Israel, and I'm kind of just sad I don't get to go with him because that would have been an amazing trip. But 
um, he, he explains different places where Jesus affirms the oral law. And while we're talking about it, we might as well go ahead and bring it up. When you hear a preacher criticizing Jews for having 613 laws, they obviously don't know much about the Hebrew Bible. Okay. And by that, I mean the Old <laughs> Testament. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of alluded to that the other day because uh, yeah. it is, it, it, I mean, it's, it's popular among some circles to say, well, God only gave us 10 commandments and the Jews turned them into the, 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 well, the Pharisees turned them into 613 laws. And I'm like, you haven't really read the Old Testament, have you? Like, you might have done a Bible in the year thing, or, you know, but you, ha- you haven't really looked at the fact that there's, there's five books that we commonly refer to as the law. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, yeah, and that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they don't count laws the way that we think of counting laws. For, for the first thing, the first law in Jewish tradition that God gave was to be fruitful and multiply. They consider that to be just as much of a law as the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. Now, if you go through the entire five books and you begin looking at the various things that God has said to people over that span of time, then all of these pronouncements become laws. That's how you get 613 laws. And it's right there in the Bibles that we all own, we all read, we all study. It's not an addition to the scripture. That's not what Jesus is referring to whenever he talks about adding to the scripture because that's there. I mean, I had to go to seminary to find out about the law concerning sending the mother bird away. That's a law. That's a law God gave to the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and for those of you who don't know, that's in Deuteronomy. And it, it's this idea that if you're collecting eggs from a nest, you send the mother bird away so that you don't grieve the mother bird. And that's considered to be the least of the laws or the lightest of the laws. So the laws really do encompass more than just the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. The Ten Commandments are kind of the bullet points. Start here. You know, this is your introduction. And if you can handle this, then we can look at going deeper into what God has for us. But the truth is, most of us have a problem with the Ten Commandments. And right. so, you know, so... We don't want to downplay the idea that there are more laws than just the Ten Commandments. And the other thing I always point out is these are the entirety of the laws for a nation. You know, these laws completely governed Israel and defined the lives of every Israelite. And so really not that oppressive. There's more than 613 traffic laws, more more than 613 real estate laws. Uh, There's probably more than 613 spoken or unspoken laws in the church you attend if you actually sat down to count them. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know. I guarantee you some of those unspoken laws are much more oppressive than anything you're going to find in the Torah. Exactly, exactly. And, and what the, the oral law does, it basically, and I know we talked about this before, but I, a lot of people have, may not have heard it, but what the oral law does is it often explains how to apply the written law. So the oral law is also known as the Mishnah. And so when we talk about how to slaughter an animal in a way that it doesn't suffer, well, now we're talking about kosher but- butchering. You're not going to find those commands within the Bible itself. Um, 
how to actually observe the holidays. You're not going to find those commands within the Bible themselves, at least not most of the holidays, uh, even though there are holidays in the Old Testament that God specifically says you need to observe. And so these things are, are what was transmitted with the oral law, even keeping the Shabbat. You aren't going to find how to do that within the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the Festival of Lights, which Jesus observed, um, we have that in John, not going to have a command or a set of rules on how to observe that in the Old Testament. All of this would have been part of the oral law. So the Talmud, part of what it does is it records these oral laws, but it also gives you stories and pictures and ways to understand application. So when these rabbis began talking about this thing called the Shamir and Solomon with Ashmedai, they're trying to provide something to you. There's a reason they decided this story is the one that needs to be written down. Mm-hmm. Because people didn't just write down everything they thought about during a day. They didn't have Facebook. It's not like I had some random thought and I'm going to post it for the world to see. No, these these thoughts were put on very expensive, costly paper. They had to be preserved in specific ways. They had to be copied by people who were specially trained. The, the whole idea of having written words of any kind that were going to be preserved and valued was very time-consuming and very expensive. Mm-hmm. So when you factor that in, now you begin to realize that there's a reason and a purpose in every story, no matter how outrageous that the Talmud has to tell us. This, these were not just flippant decisions. So we have to get behind this idea of what's going on here. Why is this an important story? And why would they decide this is the story that future generations needed to read about King Solomon? Solomon's the golden child. Mm-hmm. He's the one who established the Davidic dynasty. Until Solomon took that throne, David didn't have a kingdom. David was another judge. He was another warlord. He was not a king. I know I've said that several times, but we need to get that through our heads. Until you have that succession of the bloodline, you do not have a kingdom. This is a very important idea. And this is why Solomon's no imp- so important. It's because he is the one who establishes David's reign as king. Mm-hmm. So now you've got an issue. How do you criticize this great king and condemn his questionable actions without actually impugning who he is and what he represents? And what you do is you construct a story that has him as the main character or has a questionable main character who interacts with him, and now you can begin to have this discussion, but you can have this discussion in a safe way, in a way that opens doors for you to ask questions you couldn't ask of the text without bordering on being disrespectful or blasphemous Mm -hmm. or somehow denigrating this great man who is responsible for so much. And Let's face it, there's a lot in Solomon's story that just doesn't make sense if you compare it directly against the Torah. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things he does 
that are flat out violations of God's command, not just to kings, but to the Israelite men in general. And so the rabbis came up with a way to, he's like right here next to my, <laughs> to my desk. So uh, the rabbis came up with a way to kind of add this layer of separation that gave them that safe space. And this is one of the reasons why they, um, they concocted these seemingly wild, you know, stories with no basis or no need to have these wild stories. So um, last week we talked about how um, the story of Solomon and Ashmedai was not actually written to explain 1 Kings 6 that this was actually written to explain Ecclesiastes 2.8, mm -hmm. and which according to one translation, uh, one possible translation, Solomon acquired demons, male and female demons. Mm -hmm. And so um, this mythology grew out of that to go back and explain, that wound up explaining 1 Kings uh, 6, but also more than that. And the the story is um, is made so that we can question Solomon's actions and motive, but his heart wouldn't be questioned. The purity of his intentions isn't what's being scrutinized. It's just his deeds, and there's a difference in that. You know, do do we you know do we always do the right things? Can we do the wrong things with the right motivation? And so, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's a real fine distinction. I always told um, my girls, I'm like, if you can trust a person's motives, you can forgive them anything. And, you know, sometimes, especially in families and loved ones, if you know somebody's motivation is correct, even if they do something hurtful, it's easier to to have some grace for whatever they did. And um then we also are allowed to to question his methodology mm -hmm. because it's not happening in a real world. It, it's in kind of this mythic place. And so now we can be fanciful and not fanciful in the way of ridiculous or, and not having any bearing on re reality, but we don't have to get bogged down with the facts. And I know for a lot of people, that's really hard because, I mean, I'm an abstract thinker. I'm cool with these things. But for people who are black and white, concrete, you know, they want just the facts. These are sometimes really hard things to do. But if you think about this, this is not like some kind of weird foreign concept that people are completely unaware of. We do this with fiction all the time. When we have fictional books that are commentaries on society, and when we have fictional books that are commentaries on politics and regimes, and they're the same thing. They're a way of presenting a message without getting involved in the actual facts of what's going on. Maybe they protect the writer from having to be uh, you know, persecuted for speaking up against uh, an unjust regime. Mm -hmm. Maybe they allow the people to read this and think about principles before they actually have to confront whether or not what they're experiencing in this world is right or wrong. And, you know, I, I think one of the, um, you've read it, I haven't read all of it, I've just read snippets, uh, 1984 with George Orwell. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a political commentary. 
Yeah. And yeah, it it is a political commentary, but man, let me tell you, that book, it, it's uh, anyone who hasn't read it thinks they've read it. And that's what's really funny because even though it's political commentary and kind of satirical, it hmm. is intense. And uh, yeah, it, it was actually, um, yeah, Orwell actually was not very pleased with the way he wrote it. He, he wrote it towards the end of his life. You know, he was had tuberculosis and he said that kind of drained his ability to, to write as well as he would like to. And there's, there's some parts in there, of course, that you're like, mm, you know, the writing could be a little smoother here and there, but if, uh, yeah, that's one of those books that everyone wants to reference, but no one wants to actually read, but oh my gosh, <laughs> like, I, cause I, I, I realized a couple of years ago, I'm like, I, I don't think I've actually read it. And then I read it and I, I couldn't put it down. It was that well, uh, constructed, I thought. Well, and, and that's the, the thing. It, the, these stories become part of our psyche as a culture. And 1984 is a great example of that because everybody thinks they know the story. And so everybody thinks they, they know the biblical stories. They think they know the traditional stories. And even in ancient Judaism, they thought they knew the story. Because we have to remember when this story was originally told, it wasn't on a written page. It wasn't like somebody just handed someone a book and said, here, read this, now make sense of it. They were originally hearing this from their rabbi. They were hearing their rabbi make commentary and clarifying thoughts and provoking them to ask questions, to have these deep discussions. It wasn't presented in a vacuum. And when you're having those kinds of conversations, now you get context that you wouldn't get if you just hand somebody the written uh, written page. And so even with 1984, this is the reason why it provides, you know, great fodder for classrooms and literary um, uh, classes to to discuss and to probe deeper, because now we can talk about it. And so one of the really cool things about the Talmud is because it was based on these conversations and these very long, involved, engaged conversations that just kind of meander all over the place. The writing is kind of unusual in that often what you will have is a passage of scripture and then you'll have, well, Rabbi Akiva said this or Rabbi Yochanan said that or Rabbi Meir said this. And so you have these different voices. And they have taken these voices that have spanned centuries and put them together as if they're talking because the point wasn't just to record, you know, a point by point fact. It, it was to provoke those conversations. So, um, you know, when we have these works of fiction, that's how they're being presented. So in order to understand Solomon's story, we have to remember how he came to, to power or how to understand the Shamir. You have to remember how he came to power. So, you know, it all begins with a subterfuge or implied subterfuge between Nathan and Bathsheba mm -hmm. to get David to crown Solomon king. And then we've got the questionable killings of Shimei, who David promised not to kill, Joab, who was David's right-hand man, and then Adonia, Solomon's own brother. And then there's the whole issue of Solomon worshiping at high places. That's his very first act of public worship. And we talked about how that became a big thing to discuss. Um, 
there's the marriage to Pharaoh's daughter. There's the um, time that, you know, that he barely missed enslaving his own countrymen in order to do building projects like Pharaoh himself. And um, then we shouldn't forget the fact that, you know, he hires a Phoenician king who is known as a temple builder to come and build a temple for the one true God. And, you know, and even though we made it clear when we talked about the king of Tyre, King Hiram, as he's not the same king of Tyre that we find in Ezekiel, the rabbis, when they're discussing this, couldn't miss that connection. They already had Ezekiel in their reference library. Mm-hmm. So uh, the hiring of Hiram is very problematic for them. And so we've got this, this story that is also problematic. I mean, it begins with Solomon getting male and female demons and torturing them in order to get information out of them. He needs to know where the Shamir is. And that idea itself is very distasteful. But then we also have other points of connection within the story where Benaniah becomes Solomon's henchman once again. He's the guy who who gets the um, Ashmedai. He's the guy who manages to go track down the wild rooster. Um, he uses deceit and trickery in order to do this. Very problematic. Um, and it's almost like we have this replay of certain events. I mean, in the, the death of the wild rooster, where the, the wild rooster kills himself, it's very reminiscent of when Shimmy accidentally on purpose is tricked into, you know, executing his own death sentence because he left. He, he didn't go the way out of Jerusalem the way that he promised not to. He went a different direction, but it was enough to justify having him killed. And Joab, who is drugged from the temple, remember, Benaniah didn't even want to go in and get Joab because it was holy ground. It was a sacred space. And so... He had an issue with that, but Solomon said, go get him anyway. And then we have this whole thing where Ashmedai, the king of demons, he's citing scripture verses. He is talking in the terms of the Israel's most holy language and references in order to justify his actions. Now, it's really interesting. If you noticed when I, when I read those verses that, that Ashmedai quotes, they were all partial verses. They were all partial sentences. None of them were complete verses. Mm-hmm. That's important. But if you're just reading the story and you're going along, do you pause to notice that? You need to have a rabbi to stop and explain that to you. And so then Solomon has this entire conversation with a demon. He, he begins to ask this demon questions and Solomon is, able, is willing to give up sacred objects, powerful objects in name, engraved with the name of God in order to acquire this knowledge. Now, if that doesn't remind you of Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve are having a discussion with a snake and sacrifice not only their existence with God, but ours too, then you're, you're kind of missing something there. You, you, you need to be, be paying attention to these themes. And also, what happens right after Genesis 3? Well, you have Genesis 4. Well, what happens in Genesis 4? Cain kills Abel. The first brother to kill another brother, his story is introduced, mm-hmm. just like Solomon killed Adonia. So we have this really weird amalgamation of you know, the serpent in the garden, Cain and Abel, and 
then we can see parallel, you know, we can see all these other parallels to the immediate events within Solomon's own life. There are touch points that if you know your scripture well enough, which these rabbis did, you could actually take the story apart quite easily and begin to see these parallels and understand what the message is behind the story. Mm-hmm. So that's, I want to talk about some of these. We aren't going to go into all of them because it, it like all things uh, that these rabbis did, there's a lot of nuance, but I think we can all agree probably one of the most troubling aspects, or at least for me, the most troubling aspect of Solomon's story is why is he looking for outside help to build the, the um, to build the, the temple? And so that's kind of underlying a lot of the, the critiques of Solomon as a king in Jewish thought. Why is he going outside of Israel? And we Mm -hmm. need to remember too, just in case you forgot, God actually speaks to Solomon. He, he spoke to Solomon at the temple, or sorry, at the, uh, at Shiloh. And then he spoke, not Shiloh. Anyway, it doesn't matter. He spoke to Solomon with a dream. And and when Solomon asked for wisdom, you, you know what I'm talking about. I have not had enough sleep, okay? That's just what I'm going to blame it on. (laughs) Sorry. I mean, I kind of have my own ideas about why he got outside help. And, I mean, we've already basically covered it. It's because he wanted the best, so he consulted an expert. I mean, to me, sometimes I think, you know, we overlook (laughs) the simple answers. Right, right. Well, and and there, you know, and, and there is some validity in that. And to do we want, you know, what is giving God the best and what enables us to do the best? But again, that's what this story allows us to talk about. Um, then also, as we move forward in chapter six, we're going to find that God speaks to Solomon again. So it's not like Solomon has any problems, but this is what makes that beginning so troubling of the story that mm-hmm. we're hearing. Why is he torturing demons to find out information when he could just talk to God? Mm-hmm. Why is he talking to Ashmedai to find one of God's most amazing creatures ever created, a being that was created in the twilight of the sixth day and considered one of the ten wonders of the, the created world? What's going on? Why would he do this? And so that's the problem, because if you, like I said, they had Ezekiel and all of those writings and the, the, the condemnation for the king of Tyre in their mind as they're reading Solomon's story. Now, is that a correct bias or a way to read Solomon's story? Or is this, you know, inserting something from a different time onto a passage, imposing ideas that we've picked up later on a previous passage? I think it's the latter. I think that's what they're doing. They're, they're trying to impose an idea they were familiar with back on the story because they weren't um, they didn't want to miss the symbolism. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the things that the, t- the Talmud is really good on recording the symbolism of a story versus the actual uh, facts of the story. But that's why we've got to be careful when we read it. We want to always stick with the facts. And when we do look at symbolism, we need to know where symbolism starts and stops mm-hmm. and when it's far less important than what the Bible actually tells us. Right. And so, um, so you know, when, when um, Solomon began building the temple, the other problem is, is that he imposed this system of taxation and these um, work programs that were almost enslavement of the people. That's more like Pharaoh, not like Moses. 
remember when Moses began to build the temple, there was provi- the tabernacle, there was provision. There was provision so great and so willingly given that pe- he was turning people away. They had too much stuff. They had too many volunteers because the people were so excited to be a part of what God was doing. And so that's important. Solomon didn't expect that. Mm-hmm. He, he just assumed that he had to take, which anytime you got that word take in the Bible, there's an issue there that's gonna, supposed to set off alarm bells. He, had to t- he thought he had to take in order to give God what God demanded of him as king. And so um, we've got these issues going on within Solomon's own life, but they're being presented in a much more stark way whenever we recast the story with Solomon and the king of demons. And so now instead of Solomon and the king of Tyre, we have Solomon and the king of demons. And is there any major difference in the two actions? That's part of what the rabbis are asking here. Is there any difference between Solomon killing his brother and Cain killing his brother? Is there any difference between Pharaoh enslaving the people and Solomon forcing labor upon the people? And so we have, that's what we're allowed to ask whenever we begin reading the story and reading it from a place of understanding we aren't supposed to take this as factual events. We're supposed to use this as a method and means to begin to understand the real questions being asked. So um, the, the other question that it raises is when Ashmedai in the story supplants Solomon, whenever he takes Solomon's place, when the this allows us to ask who really is ruling when Solomon does these things, when he he does these questionable acts and these things that the rabbis found problematic, things that we should find problematic. Was Solomon the king who, who loved and served the Lord, who honored God? Was he really ruling or was it some outside force ruling Israel at this point? And can we excuse Solomon's actions? After all, they are done in service to God. They are done in an attempt to give God something that he actually commanded of them in the Torah, something that a king was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so what's more important, what he actually accomplished, his motives, the, the means that he used, was his methodology flawed? We can ask these questions within the story of Ashmedai and Solomon, because there's no wrong answer. When we're dealing with fiction, everybody can have an opinion. Everybody can can break it apart and bring their perspective to it. And they aren't in any way, you know, perverting the word of God. They're they're not misrepresenting what God is saying or what God has recorded for their benefit. They're allowed to to do this to fiction. They're not allowed to do this to the Bible, mm-hmm. at least not in the same with the same kind of freedom. And so, when we're asking these questions, uh, probably a more simple way of of phrasing it is: Do we accept what seems good on the per, on the surface, or do we need to to look deeper? 
do we need to look at those motives and motivation and try to understand what's really going on here from the internal perspective of the actor? And one of the ways that the story gets us to do this is by those deeds that Ashmedai did. Remember when they're coming from his place back to Jerusalem and he has, um, he helped the blind man mm-hmm. back to the road. And we find out, oh, he did it for because of it, it gave him something more uh, merit in the world to come. It was earning him points for being a good boy, basically. Uh, when he helped the, the drunk man back onto the road, we find out it's because he wanted that drunk man to use up his merit in the kingdom to come. We wanted, he wanted the drunk man not to receive any rewards in the next life. Mm-hmm. And so he was actually trying to harm this guy. And so we find out that, that Ashmedai's motivation isn't pure. It's not good. And so the, the, the story allows you to look at Solomon and go, is his motivation good? Is it worthy uh, of emulation? Or, or do we need to step back and really ponder what he's trying to accomplish here? Uh, was, was Solomon's act of building a temple really for God, or was it self-serving? Was there a lot of self-aggrandizement going on here? Was he trying to prove how great of a king he is? And so these are very legitimate questions that the, the text, the biblical text, actually leave room to ask. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, we've got to remember he spent seven years building the temple. Mm. That seems like a really long time. But he spends 14 years building his own house. Mm. Which one was more important? I mean, you could say, on one hand, like Rashi does, that basically the temple was so important, he poured everything into it, he got it out of the way, and he wanted to do it as quickly as possible. Okay, great. So... But 14 years for a house? Well, that's because he wanted to take it easier on the people. He wanted to, you know, not impose such hardship when it came to his own house versus the temple. Now, Mickey and I have not built a house, but I do still have boxes in the garage from when we moved two years ago. I mean, procrastination? I don't know. Well, I... Really? I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, and there, there's certain projects elements. I've been putting off. <laughs> <laughs> well, but would you put them off if you had a workforce that you had in, basically enslaved to take care of this kind of stuff for you? I, I mean, if I had people on the payroll doing it, um, probably not. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. I mean, we, we've got to stop and consider, you know, the, the entirety of the picture, because this isn't like Solomon's actually building his house. He's not actually building the temple. Right, right. And he has no qualms about pressing people into service to make sure that his quote-unquote needs are met. Um, we all know that at some point, Solomon, you know, his heart is going to turn from the Lord. Why? Because he has all these wives, 700 wives, 300 concubines. I mean, talk about excessive. The dude is excessive. That, that tells us what we need to know about his character. I mean, even when he brought his first uh, sacrifice to God, it was a thousand, um, a thousand critters. 
four-legged yep. ones that yep. moo. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> uh, sleep. I, I know. I need it's, sleep. It's been, a, it's been a couple of weeks since we referenced that specific verse, but yeah, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> but yet, so you know, it's it's that excess. It's that over-the-top kind of thing that Solomon does, and you know the the thing is, what's really crazy is he. It says specifically that he loved these women. I missed that until I read it recently. It specifically says he loved these women. We have so many stories where there's no love ever mentioned between a husband and a wife. And then Solomon says he loves these women. I mean, he went over and above everyone, every, every expectation that was put on him. And so the, whenever we find in the scripture where it talks about that his heart uh, was turned, th- there's this idea that he abandoned his position and place. And so we could get over into the, the New Testament and talk about Paul when he talks about angels, you know, abandoning their original habitation. Mm-hmm. Or we can, you know, look back to Genesis 6 whenever we're actually speaking of this event. And the rabbis were keenly aware that, that Solomon's actions were, were far, be careful how I phrase this, because I, I don't want to go too far with what I want to say. They were very aware that many of Solomon's actions bore a resemblance to what we know as the watchers or the sons of God at Genesis 6, the, the Gregory, if you, different text, the idea of these angels who left their original position, who allowed their hearts to be turned because they saw the daughters of men who were beautiful and they took them for wives. Mm-hmm. People who had uh, these, these, not people, but these spiritual beings with great wisdom, with great amount of knowledge, who knew the same kinds of things that Solomon did. Remember all those proverbs he worked, he wrote, and the fact that he was believed to be able to speak the languages of the animals. He knew about the herbs and the plants in order for to use for medicinal uses. He knew all these great proverbs, just like the king of demons. That's another little thing to remind you that sometimes Solomon's language is very similar to the um, language of demons, the language of the fallen ones. And so there's this, this inference that's being made that Solomon is more like the fallen angels than he was his father, which, I mean, obviously he wasn't at the same level as David. And I think if it's really interesting, if you look at Solomon's life, where David actually goes from being rebellious and brash and impetuous, he actually, as he ages, he becomes more considered and more passionate about observing God's law and conducting himself appropriately through his life as he ages. With Solomon, we have the exact opposite. We have him starting out very dedicated very wise, seeking the Lord, trying to do the right thing, trying to be the best king possible. And it isn't until he gets older that we start seeing the, the true betrayals of his faith in the building of the temples to, to other gods, 
to satisfy the, the whims of his wives and the fact that he even makes sacrifices to other gods. You, you know, this is the, the, the process is reversed. Mm-hmm. And within this, there, there's this, this picture of two different things. Within Judaism, they would talk about how the time of the Messiah, when, when the end times came and when the real, when the, the final Messiah came that, you know, yes, David foreshadowed that David painted, you know, put the expectations out there, but then the real Messiah, the final Messiah, man, we're going to feast on Leviathan. That's like my favorite sum it up kind of imagery for what it's going to be like, that you're actually going to feast on this chaos monster that, that creates so much evil in the world and that everyone's heart is going to be turned to God. Everyone's going to be studying Torah. Everyone's going to be engaged in the process of learning of God. This is what they're looking forward to. You know, the, the political um, powers are going to be all subject to God. They're going to be, you know, basically done away with in favor of God. So, or this Messiah. And, you know, of course we as Christians, we look forward to that, you know, when Jesus returns. Mm-hmm. And so we, we share that imagery in a lot of ways. Maybe, you know, maybe we don't talk about studying Torah, but um, you know, this idea that Solomon, yes, he was a great king. Yes, he ushered in this golden time of Israel's history. And there was amazing things that happened to allow Israel to become this influential and a nation where God's presence could be felt. But no matter how great and grand Solomon's accomplishments were, they still weren't the same as what was going to happen when the Messiah, the the final Messiah arrived. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I think we as Christians, when we read the story, we're supposed to be, oh, well, I say we're supposed to be, if we as Christians read the story, one of the things I think we can take away from it is we can actually view Solomon not as the, the, the penultimate expression of God's divine um, rule, because he wasn't. He had so many flaws. He had so many issues. But we can see how it really is only Jesus on the throne, reigning in eternity, that's going to usher in the true golden age of humanity, not just Israel, but all of the earth in a global basis. And so Solomon he also demonstrates to us that every human leader, every government official who's flesh and blood, they're going to fail. Mm-hmm. I, they're, they're just, they're not going to make it just like the, the sons of God who, who were given authority on the earth and were able to do certain things. They failed. Even the angelic powers that were supposed to lead people back to God, the the ones who stood in God's presence, just like Solomon actually stood in God's presence and spoke to him, Mm -hmm. they all failed. Everything points us back to the only true answer to any of the issues, whether we're talking about political systems, we're talking about cultural mandates, societal expectations, the only true answer for any of these things to be good and holy and just and beneficial for everyone is when the Messiah, Jesus Christ, actually comes to rule on this earth again. And until that happens, the best of the best are 
always going to get caught up in their own egos. They're going to get caught up in their own sense of self-worth, and they're going to forget the mandate that God placed on them. Why? Because they're human and flawed, or if we're talking about the watchers, because they're not pure and holy like our God is. Mm-hmm. And so when we read these stories in the Talmud, when we begin to see these fictions where we have these outlandish creations that, you know, our rational scientific mind says, no, I don't actually want to, to deal with that. That's too far-fetched. That's too much. We need to stop and ask those questions we began with. Why was this so important it was written? And it's so you can come to terms with the flaws of one of the greatest heroes that Israel ever knew as far as being a liberator and a time, providing a time of prosperity for the entire nation. That's the point. It's not that you read this story and want to go out and try to find the Shamir so that you can build something that would make God happy. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that, that's not the takeaway. And I, I think the other thing we need to remember here, too, uh, and I almost forgot this point, when Solomon began building the temple, he made a decree, and we read this in 1 Kings 6, that there weren't supposed to be iron tools on the building site of the temple. And we talked about how you cannot find a scripture in the Torah to back that up. Mm-hmm. Now, we can find the scripture in Exodus that says that nothing should be used, no iron tool should be used to hew the stones of the altar, just the altar, mm-hmm. not the temple. And so Solomon's dilemma about how, does the, how do you hew stones, how do you shape the stones for this building, was actually born out of his desire to add to Scripture. Mm-hmm. And so many times when we have an issue with what's going on within the Christian community, it's because someone's adding to Scripture. They, they think mm-hmm. that they can be more holy they, they can satisfy God and make God happier if they exceed his mandate, exceed his commands, instead of just doing what they're told. Right. And so, yeah, so that's what Solomon's doing. He, he's saying, hey, I'm going to go above and beyond what God even required of me. But in, the, in how he does it, he actually becomes more oppressive to his people than if he had just done what God told him to do. Mm-hmm. And how many times have we seen that in the Christian community, where the church becomes more oppressive to believers because they want to go over and above what God just told them to do? Sometimes it takes, I, I've decided this from based on years of observation and you know, stupid experience I've created for myself, I, I, I think it takes more faith to just do what you're told and believe that God's really going to take care of everything else, that we don't have to step up and defend him. We don't have to step up and do his job. <clears throat> Excuse me. We don't have to do his job for him. And if we just really have faith that he will do what needs to be done and quit trying to think that we need to do it on his behalf or in some way to earn some kind of merit for the world to come, because that's not how this works. <laughs> that's not the way God designed his kingdom. His kingdom was designed for us to walk in faith and trust that he will be true to his word. Mm-hmm. And we don't have to pay him off. 
And so Solomon, because he made this mistake of trying to, to exceed the Torah, he actually set this, the kingdom up. And we're going to find that what happens is there's going to be a division. There's going to be the split. How many times we see this today in churches where somebody comes in, there's a, this you know, very charismatic pastor, everybody loves him, everybody thinks he's great, and he begins making demands of the people, and everything's going well. At first, the people are, are really happy about it because we're getting so much done for the kingdom of God, and then there's some kind of, of event that fractures that church. Because that suddenly what started as something good and positive became too oppressive to bear. Mm -hmm. And then we have this church split where one church is talking about how bad the other church is. And the the gossip keeps (laughs) rumbling in the background of our minds and we can't really focus on God. And we wind up creating new places to worship and new methodologies to worship until we aren't really even engaged in Christianity or the business of Christianity at all. And so that's what's going to happen in Israel. This is exactly what's going to happen. And because we don't study our Old Testament, we don't get, you know, we don't know these stories. We aren't seeing the cautionary tales that have been provided for us, either as leaders or followers. And so I think one of the reasons why we miss some of these things is because we don't use the tools that the rabbis gave us. And, you know, and in our defense, most of us don't know how. We we weren't taught how to read this book called the um called the Talmud. And you know Well in, in, given, in our in our defense, I mean historically the church has done a lot to try to separate itself from Judaism uh in some ways that are um have been kind of toxic. I mean to, oh, to put it yeah, mildly. there was yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. There's been, you know, I, I get really upset when I see anti-Semitic views within the Christian world uh, because that's just, it's, it's a ridiculous position to hold. Mm-hmm. And I base that on scripture because if you talk about Paul, he says we're grafted in. Now, one of the things I know about grafting plants, if I graft a live branch onto a dead root, Guess what happens? My branch dies. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work. You know, he talks about we're adopted in. So if I adopt a child, do I go kill off my my other children? You know, that that's not how it works. And so and now I'm not saying that we need to be Jewish. I'm not saying we need to keep the Torah. I'm not saying that we need to go back and try to to do the things that God commanded of the Jewish nation. But we need to have a respect for what God has done through the Jewish nation and quit acting like somehow Jews have just killed. The, they were the ones who killed Jesus. That's not the truth. The truth is the Romans killed Jesus, but even a greater truth is we all killed Jesus. And so anytime we fall prey to anti-Semitic views and ideas, we just, we're, we're disrespecting God's word. We're disrespecting the people that God chose to bring this around. And, you know, I'm not talking about whether or not or how we should, I don't even know how to put this. It, it's, it becomes such a big polluted mess 
because if you get on the internet, there are some really just awful things that are done both in the name of Christianity and even Jewish communities or supposedly not even real Jewish communities today trying to to keep this conflict alive, mm-hmm. trying to to insert that bitterness and hatred into both sides of the equation. And yeah. that's not the way it's supposed to be. So do I think we need to keep the Torah in order to be good Christians? Absolutely not. Do I think we need to learn everything we possibly can from it? Absolutely, because it's still God's word. I see you have your Bible open. Yeah, and and um, and, and I'm trying to remember where the exact verse is, but, you know, uh, I should have just Googled it. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it, um, you, you talk for a second. Let me look this up. Okay, well, I'm trying to remember what to talk about because I got all wound up and then I forgot. So, no, I... I do think we have done ourselves a oh, disservice. Oh, here it is. Well, I mean, yeah. Oh, okay. okay. Go. John, you know, one of the biblical okay. authors. Okay, you know, If anyone <laughs> says, I love God and hates his brother, is a liar. Uh, for he does not love his brother, uh, who he has seen. He cannot love God, who he has not seen. And, you know, that's a, a pretty good summation. You know, and, and I know uh, I know everyone's going to put their little caveats on it. Oh, well, well, that means brother means person inside the church or something like that. but. It really, you know, I think I think we're probably going to need to be looking a little broader there. I think if, I think at any time, if your religion leads you to hate a person, mm-hmm. um, for you know, or a group of people, especially a group of people, um, mm-hmm. that that may or may not even behave any way in the same way, or you know, <laughs> or yeah, you know, I, I think we're we're running into error, and uh, so you know, and I you know, I I I say that knowing that there are people who have used that uh, philosophy to justify a new, uh, 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 numerous things. But at the same time, we have to balance it with the, the holiness that God calls us to. It's that tension. It's the tension that, that was one of the very first things we talked about when we started the podcast. And, you know, it's that being able to still speak truth in love, but not hating someone and speaking truth to be hurtful. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when we do encounter people with who have sin in their lives, and, you know, honestly, I talked to somebody about this this last week. I don't feel like it's my job to walk up to somebody and say, hey, by the way, you're wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're, you have a problem. You need to get it right. Now, if somebody comes to me and says, hey, Emily, what do you think? Or what does the Bible have to say? Or what should I do? Now they've asked a question. Mm-hmm. And I have an obligation to speak truth, but I don't have the right to try to tear them down and try to hurt them with the truth. That doesn't mean the truth's not hurtful sometimes. Yeah, but well, it, I mean, you simple, back it up with that compassion, right? That compassion. Yeah, like a, a simple example. Um, you know, I was at a church and there was a guitar player there, and his his right hand strumming technique was awful. Um, I mean, he, he was in time, he was on rhythm, but is the, the way he hit the strings was, it just didn't produce the right sounds, especially for what we wanted for the mix. Uh, but that's a whole another story. Um, but instead of, you know, the first day I see it walking up to him going, Hey, your right hand technique sucks. Yeah. You know, I, I waited and after, you know, three or four times of him breaking strings during the middle of the service, I said, Hey, would you like, a 
would you like some help on some uh, technique to help you break fewer strings? And he was like, oh, how do I do that? I said, well, uh, I said, if you hold your pick just a little differently, and I you know, showed mm-hmm. him and I sent him a YouTube video, cleaned up his right-hand technique, sounded better, quit breaking strings. You know, it's, it's you know, I, I realize that's not a moral example, but it's, ha- you know, I was trying to think of something that's not offensive. You know, it's a, right. the difference between saying, hey, you're doing this in a terrible way to, hey, you could do this better. Mm-hmm. A- and here's an opportunity to, to learn, sound better, save yourself money on strings because you buy the expensive ones. Um, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> well, and if you, you take time to develop some relationship, let people see your heart, let people understand that your motives, uh, hopefully your motives are pure. It's amazing how often, even if they disagree, they don't reject you. Mm-hmm. They don't try to run you off. And they can be okay with, with having differing opinions. And, you know, being able to walk with someone with differing opinions and being able to have a relationship with someone with differing opinions, that's how you open the door to influence. That's yep. how you open the door to, to sharing truth. And here's the really great thing. God is faithful to deal with people in his timetable. We, we just need to keep planting seeds and tending, you know, watering as needed and being faithful in those things and really trusting God to do the rest. Because mm-hmm. again, that's where Solomon messed up. He said, oh, well, if God wants this much, I need to do that much. And mm-hmm. so that's not how it is. God just, just, you know, basically boil it down. Be nice. Don't be a jerk. Well, and, <laughs> yeah, well, there, there is, in, there, there's, um, you know, and back, back to the, the relationship, I want to talk a couple of things about that, you know, uh, there, there's a, a verse, uh, I forget exactly, I'm going to paraphrase it and probably really butcher it, but basically the, the essence of it is live your life in such a way that if someone brings an, any accusation against you, those who have been around you will know that it's false. Right. Um, you know, uh, I can't remember, you know, you know which one I'm talking about if yeah, don't ask but, me for reference, though. <laughs> but yeah, I'm terrible with numbers. But but basically, you know, it's building that, back to what you're saying, is building that relationship and that credibility um, mm-hmm. because we are living in a world where the, and, and I hate to do the whole culture war thing, but there right. is a lot of media. There's a lot, especially in social media, there's a lot mm-hmm. of, of internet atheists out there that their caricature of Christianity is what permeates the, the world, you know, it, yeah. there are people who have never met someone who calls himself a Christian who, who does care about them and not just mm-hmm. their personal holiness. You know, we, right. we, we, ha- we have to love people. And that's, that's the thing, you know, we, we, there's so many, there's so many times I hear a lot of these people just rail against sin and things. And it's like, but here's the deal. The Bible also says, as much as it depends on you, live at peace among these people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yes, we can call them to truth. But the thing is, we, we've got to realize a lot of these people, a lot of the models and things that people are using in some of these ministries are on an outdated social model um, mm-hmm. where, yes, there was you could rely on the assumption that most people believed in some kind of deity or su- supernatural. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, you're going to the, we're get, we're at the point now where you can't even just assume that about right. people, even here in the U S they probably have heard of the word Jesus. Um, mm-hmm. They probably 
heard people talk about God, but they kind of file people, anyone in the religious category, into the, the crazy cuckoo category and don't realize that there's a lot of really reasonable people in the world who believe mm-hmm. this stuff. And not only that, a lot of people who, they can, who can disagree respectfully, who can right. still love people in spite of the fact that we disagree. And I think that, that so often the caricature is that if we disagree, then we're just troglodytes and have no, um, no reasoning skills and, and, you know, all that. Well, and I think that's also where the social media comes in. When we've built all of our relationships around, you know, one or two sentences that are posted three or four times a day and there's no real relationship, how are they ever going to trust our character? And I think right. this is one reason why we we need to make it a point as Christians to build relationships within our communities, um, you know, to actually speak to people face-to-face, to, to go out of our way to invite people into our homes when we can, mm-hmm. to, to do all the things that create an environment where you can get to know someone and someone can get to know you. And you aren't just a caricature on your Facebook profile, because I don't care how honest you are being on your Facebook profile, someone has still created that into an image of you that bears very little resemblance to reality. And I'm not even talking about someone who's just putting up all the pretty stuff, the good stuff, or, you know, I'm, I'm, it, it's the nature of the beast. And so you just have to accept that. So Building the, those relationships and finding ways to open doors to spend real time with other people is so important. And for a lot of us, that's going to be on our jobs. And that's one of the reasons why we have to do things on our jobs in our job site to make sure that we are living in a way that reflects God within us. Yeah. And so that's really hard. I, I understand that. But, you know, one of the things when I had an outside job was to do all things as if into the Lord. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing how often that will open doors within your own you know, work community mm-hmm. and fellow coworkers to have these conversations in a non-threatening way. And so don't discount, you know, even that time at work. Don't try, you know, some of us don't have time to build a separate side ministry to reach out to the community. So right. do it where you're at, you know, believe where you're planted if you, you know, want to go back to Irma. Yeah. So well, and and on on social media, two two rules I generally follow is uh because there are there are times when I will jump in. Um, usually those are going to be whenever I'm you know discussing and debating things with other Christians. A lot of times I don't really jump into a lot of the public circles just because there's so many trolls out there. Um, mm-hmm. And I say trolls as in someone who I'm not calling the person a troll. I'm saying they are it's engaging the in the activity of. <laughs> trolling um they're 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 arguing for sport yeah. and uh but uh the the two little sayings uh is one I, I think was will rogers said never miss an opportunity to shut up um <laughs> because sometimes you know it's, it's that whole you know best to keep your mouth shut and let people assume you're a fool then open it and remove all doubt um right and but then the other the other one is uh you don't have to attend every argument you're invited to um because if if that was what you did, you would literally spend all day and accomplish nothing online. Um, oh yeah. Oh, and, this morning I I posted started to post a comment, had it all typed up, and went. I don't feel like getting drained by this. 
Mm-hmm. So well, and, and I deleted and there's, it. <laughs> yeah, and and whenever I do engage, I make sure that I'm constantly checking myself and in the right headspace. You know, and those are the, those are my two general rules when I do engage. There's two a couple things I keep in mind is number one, I'm not arguing for the sake of changing the person's mind that I'm arguing with. Typically, I'm mm-hmm. presenting things for other people who might be able to learn. The right. other thing is never attack the, the person. person. Always yeah. their argument, always mm-hmm. their argument. And, yeah. um, you know, there's, there's a couple times I might get a little snarky in the way I word something. Um, but, <laughs> no, never. Um, <laughs> but definitely always the argument. And, and because that's, that's really, you know, the, the enemy, it's not the person. So, anyway, exactly. that's where. I, I do feel yeah. like we kind of went a little far afield there, but, you know, that's... And we thought we were going to have a short episode today. Yeah. yeah. Speaking <laughs> of, I need to run. I've got to, to uh, run I some errands I have people in the house work. waiting for me, so... Okay. <laughs> well, have fun. Everyone uh, in internet land, thanks for joining us. Be part of the conversation. Raven Creek SC, RavenCreekSC.com. And yes, I realized last week was our 200th episode. We didn't mention it. We got got swamped and just forgot to do anything special. So, uh, you know, pretend we uh, all celebrated and we'll see you next time. (laughs) Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.